G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. Uh, back with you after uh, oh, about an extra half a week since our last episode. Uh, nothing untoward if you've been panicking about where's the next episode. Uh, it was simply that we wanted to bring you a full uh, wrap-up, analysis, whatever you like, of the 2021 draft, which uh, isn't a simple procedure anymore. We're talking about three different time slots now. Last Wednesday night, we had the first round selections of the first 20 picks. Another 45 players added to the 2022 AFL playing pool on Thursday evening. And then on Friday, the pre-season and rookie drafts, which, uh, well these days turn up some um, fairly major AFL players. So three different time slots to talk about. We thought we might as well wait until they're all finished and bring you a fulsome review at the beginning of the following week, which is what we're doing, recording this on Monday. As I say, a very good afternoon it is now to my footyology co-host, Mark Finey, you all drafted out, Finey. Well, obviously, I'm... You know, three separate time slots, and we like bringing the program to our loyal listeners in a timely manner. Don't blame us, blame the AFL. And I will say this, Rowan if you have a band aid, don't get the AFL to pull it off because I've got a feeling they'd pull it off pretty bloody slowly <laughs> with, with cameras. Well, there's only, uh, there's only one upside, of course, to the fact that it spanned three different time slots, and that was. As you were sitting back watching it, or maybe watching it online in the case of the rookie in preseason draft, that gave you three different opportunities to go and buy the best hamburger in town, Finey. And where would I have ventured to to go and find the best hamburger in town? 144 Bridport Street in Albert Park. Yeah, a little bit like the um, Goldilocks and the Three Bear stories, except in this story, if you went there three times, unlike poor Goldilocks, who only got it right the third time, you'd get it right the first time at Andrews with a beautiful burger. You might go and get a variation on the theme, a bit hungry, hungrier for the second part of the draft, a double banger burger with two of the meat patties, and then who knows? I know you wouldn't have had one with egg for your third choice, but I would have. You would have gone the bacon, not the pineapple. I'm learning your tastes, but all tastes are catered for there, Rowan. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. They are indeed. In fact, the third one being a mid-afternoon event. I might have uh, asked if they could do me a little, uh, what do they call them, a slider. <laughs> like a, a mini a mini burger. If uh, the boys and Andrews haven't got that on the menu, I reckon that's a pretty decent suggestion, particularly in that neck of the woods. I reckon Albert Park would be pretty big on sliders mid-afternoon. You, you know who's got a good range of sliders, actually? Who? McDonald's. Aren't all their burgers becoming sliders? Because every time I get one, they show, those Big Macs, they fit it. Either my hands are getting bigger or their Big Macs are getting smaller. 
Well, the only place I see them sliding is down the popularity charts, Fonny, because they are no match for the wondrous Andrews Hamburgers. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. All right, we're going to talk about all those drafts. Uh, we've got a big uh, special uh, segment for vinyl and video today with not one, but two choices from our top 20, our favourite 20 songs and movies of all time. And, of course, some great, fantastic footy flashbacks. Let's get into it. On Footyology Newsfeed. All right, we're here to talk about the 2021 AFL draft or drafts. Plenty of news, of course. The number one pick in the 2021 draft, no surprise at all. Been touted for a long time. And uh, fortunate enough, uh, I've got to say, I haven't always seen the number one pick even play, but I have seen this guy play during the SANFL final series. And we're talking about Jason Horn Francis, who the number one pick delivered to North Melbourne, South Adelaide Dynamo. Um, in fact, he was best on ground in a losing South Adelaide uh, preliminary final side against, against Glenelg. He was unbelievable. He is some player, absolutely no question. He will go straight into that senior lineup and I think make a reasonably big impact. Strong bodied, ball magnet, uh, very good football brain, good overhead. He's just got all the attributes, but we've come to expect that with the draft these days. Uh, number two pick, pretty interesting as well. A highly rated father-son, Sam Darcy, for the Western Bulldogs, the son of former Bulldog uh, Ruckman Luke Darcy, now, of course, media commentator. And uh, the number three pick, Finn Callahan, off to GWS. But plenty of interest in this year's draft. Finally, what uh, caught your eye particularly? Well, at the top end, Horn Francis, I saw um, the preliminary final, the game that they lost, and he is so impressive. I haven't seen a player as impressive. Equally, Equal to him, he reminds me very much of Bryce Gibbs' entry into league football. Bryce was playing uh, with Glenelg in the seniors, and looked every bit a star player at senior level in the Sandfall. Now, Bryce Gibbs's career was steady without probably hitting the heights that was expected after that early viewing. I can't see Horn Francis being anything but a star footballer, Rowan. He's also a great mark, which makes him the modern midfielder that goes forward and kicks goals, the ideal prospect. I mean, that really is the Dustin Martin, Bontempelli, Nat Fife prototype footballer, isn't it? Yeah, look, I, I can, I mean, you don't want to sort of put the moz on people, but, uh, you know, I, 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 not in terms of the type of player, but I see Chris Judd about this, and I mean a guy coming in and just having immediate impact. Yeah. He, he might not have the explosiveness uh, away from the contest of, say, a Judd did or other, other players of that ilk, but... Funnily enough, I think for a young guy coming into league footy, that might actually be a bonus because I think a lot of his good work will be done in close. And he definitely has a sort of strength, unusual strength, I think, for a um, for a draftee. And in that regard, I'm sort of thinking about, I don't know this why this guy just popped into my head, but say Cam Rayner. Um, you know, very strong body. So not much doubt I think he'll have an immediate impact. What were some of the other interesting elements of the draft. Well, the, the father-son selections are always interesting, aren't they? Sam Darcy, of course, going at number two. Enormous 
wraps on him. Um, so Bulldogs uh, obviously delighted to be able to get him after um, who was a GWS put in a speculative bit on him, but that was quickly matched. The other father-sons in this year's draft, um, Jackson Archer, the son of North Melbourne shinboner of a century, Glenn Archer, picked at number 59. Jace Burgoyne, the uh, son of Port Adelaide Premiership player, Peter Burgoyne, picked at 60. The final pick of the draft, pick number 65, Melbourne picked up Taj Wowoden, son of 2000 Brownlow medalist Shane Wowoden, and much delight in the Wowoden clan about that because I don't think it was a a given. And uh, the other father son, but not uh, playing for the club at which his dad played, is uh, Jesse Motlop, uh, picked up by Carlton with pick 27. He is the son of Daniel Motlop, formerly of North Melbourne and Port Adelaide. So some interesting pickups there, Finey, and some great pedigrees, obviously. Um, Jackson Archer, uh, well, I wonder if he'll be expected to play a similar sort of role as his dad, uh, i.e. the enforcer. And uh, the others, of course, all with their own stories to carve out. But Sam Darcy, enormous raps on him. Um and Nick Dacos, of course. Oh, yes, sorry, I forgot one. That was the uh, that was the one I shouldn't have overlooked, should I? Nick Dacos, of course, at pick number four. Um, yeah, but, but it's almost understandable because he's been pre-selected and we've known him and his selection almost since the ink had was drying on last year's draft selections. Immediately, everybody was talking about Nick Dacos, so... It's almost a, a Collingwood-listed player who just didn't have any football in 2021. There is another father-son, uh, not qualified under the number of games, but St Hilda's first pick, Naziah Wanganine Malera, oh, yeah. is the son of Kerry Malera, who played three, uh, three games, 30 games for the Saints. And not all that long ago, is it like a, a father's getting younger or what's happening here? I'm sure it wasn't Malera yeah, yeah, playing around the, the mid he was playing as late as about what two fourteen or fifteen, wasn't he? No, no, not that, not that no, recent, not that recent. But his best game of football was in an intra-club game, Rowan. Well, that's not much good. Well, it was a very odd game because that was the game, and I went to this game in Wangaratta that Essendon didn't turn up at. Oh, that one, yeah. Okay. In the in the flooding, pouring rain, and his skills in that wet weather, were sublime. So, yeah, they say Nazai is a, a beautiful kick, and I saw some of that pedigree in the pouring rain at Wangaratta all those years ago. Now, uh, some other good... I, I like good stories to come out of the draft. The mature age pickups are always uh, uh, good news stories or feel-good stories, and two of them, Garrett McDonough, picked up by Essendon, Um he is a 25-year-old who's done the rounds. I think most recently played with Richmond's VFL side. And the other one, really interesting, and I, I actually watched this guy play in the Waffle Grand Final, Greg Clark, 24-year-old. Uh, he has been picked up by West Coast. Um, I think he was BOG in the Waffle Grand Final for Subiaco. Uh, who was that against? Was it? I uh, watched it and I can't remember. I think it was South Fremantle. Um, but a triple premiership player with Subiaco and uh, West Coast 
Well, they've got an elderly list, but 24 is hardly going to hurt that too much. And uh, right in the prime of his football, Greg Clark. So, I don't know, perhaps we we don't see enough of those mature age pickups because uh, the history of some of them suggests that they are well worth a punt. Um, Sliders, well, there's various debate about sliders or guys who... (laughs) You're keen on sliders this episode. uh, Yeah, it's true. Um, The one I think most people are talking about there, a guy who went lower than he was tipped to, uh, is Essendon's game. That is Benjamin Hobbs. Uh, when I say a slider, taking a pick 13, it's hardly way down the pecking order, is it? But I think the Bombers, uh, from all accounts, delighted to get their hands on him, a prolific ball winner. Um, what about uh, your Sainers? Finally, are you happy with their bounty? Well, their plan was, with fingers crossed, to reap a bounty from their uh, NGA, Next Generation Academy and not allowed to pick a player inside the top 20, meant that they had a couple of players considered on that sort of bubble. They were McSheeter Owens, who ended up going at 33, a match bid to Carlton, and Marcus Windhager, who went further down the list and killed a match that. Now, these are two players they couldn't have got with their selections. They had no second-round draft pick, traded for Higgins last year with the Tigers. In other words, they got a couple of second rounders by matching those bids with other later draft picks. In fact, you won't see this in the rookie draft, but they actually took two more Academy of players, including the son of the late Daniel Batman and Bateman or Batman and Nova Paris. Uh, that he joins as a Category B rookie along with another NGA player. So St Kilda really focused there with four NGAs. And, hey, it's nice to have a Wangaline on the list, right? Yes. That can't uh, hurt, can it? <laughs> well, unlikely you're going to go wrong there. Uh, very different strategies from different clubs, uh, which is interesting. I mean, um, I, I think there's a lot more uh, variety now among the sorts of players clubs are seeking out come draft time, of course, more needs-specific, perhaps. Um, North Melbourne is interesting, I reckon. I mean, again, without sort of labouring the point on Horn Francis, he is going to be a star. But I was just thinking, you, you know, we've talked about North's rebuild, but again, for a side that finished on the bottom of the ladder, I'd be pretty excited about the future if I was a Roos supporter. And I was thinking with the addition of Horn Francis, um, look at their on-ball division now. It's, it's not only different, but it's young and it's exciting. So, you know, you've got Horn Francis coming in and joining Jai Simpkin, who is still really young, but undoubtedly a leader of that side now. You've got Jaden Stevenson. Well, you know, maybe uh, inclined to be a little erratic off the field, but we know he's got plenty of talent uh, and can definitely play a midfield role. Taron Thomas, a real uh, exciting developer who really took uh, some some giant leaps forward last year, and Luke Davies Uniac, who now has been in the system. Well, he was in the 2017 draft, so four seasons now at the Roos. So that is that's before you even mentioned Ben Cunnington, and of course, sadly, um, he's got some real health uh, battles to fight. Hopefully, he can come back and be a big part of it. But you're really looking at a new look sort of North Melbourne now, and it might take a while, but I think it's pretty exciting for them. Wouldn't you agree? It is, and 
nothing that they don't deserve because they were pretty courageous, no, very courageous in delisting a lot of senior players at the end of uh, not last season, the season before. And that was waters muddy because Reece Shaw then left the club. This made it a difficult transition, but I think everybody's enamoured with David Noble. He was very calm in the early part of the season when the losses were piling up and he hasn't gone beating his chest with some late season form, just quietly heading down a road, not dissimilar to another uh, another coach that he's very familiar with, but it has a touch of the Brisbane's about me, that, uh, for me, about North Melbourne, as they build a team maybe from the midfield out. The other really good news for North Melbourne is that young Larky, I thought, last year developed into what looks to me to be a long-term forward. Now, hopefully they can get somebody to go the journey with him, but I think there's great promise here. And you know what? It's their first ever number one draft pick. It's not as though they've been spoon-fed over the years. They've been a, a very competitive club, and they deserve a champion with their first pick at Mate. number one ever. Yeah, no, good, good, uh, good point. And uh, look, the other one that interests me too is Hawthorne because I like sort of spotting a side that makes some improvement towards the back end of a year in terms of looking at the next season. And now, gee, Hawthorne, they're such a good club. They're always a safe bet to rebound reasonably quickly. And yeah, new coach, Sam Mitchell. So that's exciting. Uh, perhaps a, a new uh, game style. But they definitely did start to make some headway, I thought, right at the back end of last year. And look at their draft bounty. Midfield's the area they need to bolster. Josh Ward from Northern Knights, very highly rated. Good, solid hand uh, from the Northern Knights. Sam Butler, another one. Um, pretty highly rated. He was at pick 23 and a brother of an AFL uh, established, well, rising star, um, Caleb Sarong, of course, at Fremantle. His brother, Jai, having gone to Hawthorne, not exactly like for like there either because Caleb, uh, not exactly weighing in on the tall side, weighing in, measuring in on the tall side at 178 centimetres. Jai is 192 so uh, about a foot taller than his brother. Hang on, is that right? 12 centimetres? No, not a foot taller, but you know, half a foot taller than his brother. Can play anywhere, I'm told. So um, interesting pickups for uh, for the Hawks as well. I, I don't know. I've just got a early days finally. I've just got a feeling about the Hawks. I'm not sure they're going to be down for too long. Well, they historically don't stay down for long at all, and they showed enough again in the second half of last season with some of their youngsters to suggest that they can rebound fairly quickly. But who who then gravitates towards the bottom? It's hard to pick. And certainly after a draft, there's optimism at all clubs. I like what Gold Coast did. They have really shown, not faith, but they've said, you know what, we're going to take a kid that can fill so many needs and they're going to invest a lot of their future in Mac Andrew. Now, he's got scope, young Sudanese boy that can play forward, can play back. Don't think he'll ruck, but he could easily be the one of the taller midfielders you've ever seen in your life. And he's got, he really does have X Factor written all over him. And on top of winning games, Gold Coast need X Factor players. So I think he could be a great marquee signing. 
Well, don't forget Mabby Orchol, of course, uh, coming in via trade. So um, they could be a super exciting side. And actually, I'm glad you mentioned them because Charlie Constable, you know, like he very, very limited senior opportunities, but was a very highly rated draftee in that, uh, I think, 2017 crop. Now, he was picked up in this year's draft at 63, but... Um, look, he just got squeezed out Geelong by, sheer, by the sheer amount of seasoned players the Cats brought in in their tilt for a flag. So at another club, he might have been a week-to-week proposition. Very solid conveyance. So I think he can really bolster them up. And I think their, their picks from other clubs have been a lot smarter in the last few years, as we saw well. They lost Hugh Greenwood, and we spoke about that. But Brandon Ellis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think have uh, done particularly well for them. And the other one they picked up in the last stage of the drafting, of course, Levi Casbolt, which uh, will bolster them up forward. So, yeah, you're talking about four pretty exciting prospects there, three of them uh, key position size. So, um, yeah, well, we've we've pumped up Gold Coast before and been disappointed, but uh, really time for them to deliver results. You'd look at that group of players and think, well, they're, Something's going to happen with them. It's not going to be dull, whatever happens. Just as I said and we said that Hawthorne aren't down the bottom for very long, there's also a sense that Gold Coast can't hold form to keep them in the top half of the ladder for very long either, that they naturally gravitate towards the bottom. Now, they just have to, they have to be the leopard that changes their spots, Rowan, and they have to do it sooner rather than later because in the end there's going to become an a level of pressure on not just the players and the coach, but the actual club itself to perform. You know what? Stuart Dew had a short but very successful time at Hawthorne. If anybody, and he's a very smart coach, if anybody can tap into that zeitgeist and say to this Gold Coast group, you know, clean slate, we are not what was, I reckon Stuart Dew could be that person. He has to be, Rowan. He actually has to be. Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, we, we seem to say it every year, now or never, but, uh, yeah, I mean, patience well and truly run out there. First season in the competition, 2011. So uh, 11 seasons, season 12 coming up, time to deliver something. But uh, yeah. they're certainly backing themselves to do that and some really good young kids there as well. All right, that's probably enough of a look at the draft. As I said at the top of the show, we have got a special edition of vinyl and video this week. Not one, but two of our favourite songs and movies. Indeed, we are talking about numbers 16 and number 15 on our top 20 list. Let's do it. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Number 16, Finey, in our favourite 20 movies and songs. And uh, I'm going local. Uh, I'm very patriotic when it comes to the arts, I think, having reviewed my uh, selection of, uh, well, not so much movies, but I do like my share of Australian cinema, music more so, uh, Oz Rock. I'm a big fan of vintage Oz Rock. But this is about an Australian movie and uh, pretty much my favourite Australian movie of all time. I think it's really stood the test of time. Um, I think it's a really uh, accurate, funny, quite incisive um, look at Australian outback culture 
uh, the 1950s. The film is Sunday Too Far Away, made in 1975, directed by Ken Hannum. It is about uh, shearers in outback Australia and specifically the lead up to uh, some major industrial rea- uh, reaction action, which was the shearers strike, um, which caused quite a furor and uh, non-union labour introduced to the shearing sheds and all hell broke loose. But this sort of covers the lead up to that and uh, life on the sheep station and uh, the life of the uh, shearers and the rouseabouts and the uh, the uh, property owners and the contractors and uh, everyone who um, contributed to that sort of cultural melting pot. Great cast, great Australian cast, vintage Australian actors here. Jack Thompson playing the lead role of Foley, who is the gun shearer. And as we find out, shearing is a very competitive business. You know, they have their own sort of equivalent of the the Brownlow Medal of Shearing, if you like, and they uh, tally up the numbers there. Fantastic performance from Jack Thompson. Max Cullen, another great Australian actor. He plays the uh, the contractor who's put this group of shearers together to, uh, I think they call it, ringing this particular shed. Peter Cummins, another great Australian actor, plays uh, Jack Thompson's uh, rival, if you like, for that title of gun shearer. Johnny Hewitt, another famous Australian actor. And I, I can absolutely guarantee you if, if the names themselves don't ring a bell, you'd only have to see a picture of any of those four guys and you would know them immediately. Johnny Hewitt plays another shearer called Ugly. Um, look, you know, there's not there's no great twists and turns. It's a pretty simple plot, but it's just a fantastic wry sort of observation of Australian life of the 1950s. I saw this not long after it came out as a 10, 11-year-old, and I loved it then, and, and I still love it. I, I just think it's it's got that great old sort of understated Australian-ness about it. You know, there was something about Australian cinema of the 70s and, and 80s which told stories beautifully, you know, without the need for, you know, garish effects and, and overblown plots or whatever. It, it, it was all in the script, the dialogue and the acting, and I... I reckon this film nails it. And, uh, you know, look, it's it's made in the mid-70s in production terms. There's nothing special about it, but it just it captures a slice of Australian history perfectly, and that's why I love it so much. I'm interested in what you think about this film, whether you've seen it and what you think of it, Finey. Yeah, I've seen it. And first of all, excellent review. That was really well reviewed. I think you were channeling your late father there, a great movie reviewer, <laughs> Now, that was a very strong review. Now, the the movie Sunday Too Far Away, I remember actually as about a 15-year-old, so it must be 1980. It seemed to me to be on the, the Sunday night movie every fourth week. So the, the, the ad for it was a car rollover. Yeah. And I remember I saw that car rollover about 15 times one year. <laughs> <laughs> Sunday Too Far Away, not for the good people at Channel 7 or 9 that were showing it. Um, I love... Maybe I didn't appreciate it when I first saw it. I've revisited it in the last six or seven years on TV, and I love pieces that you would call now a period piece. It captures a past historical period, and whether or not it's ground, you know, earth-shattering, the whole world knows about it. Believe me, for the shearers and for rural Australia, the shearer strike, and for all Australians, was an enormous um 
sort of cleave in in the working class relationship with their employers and and very much would have paved the way for other industries that work piecemeal to get paid properly because they get paid per piece. This was, it's a great movie to look back on. The dialogue is of the time. So filmed in 75, but 20 years on, most of those actors were able to tap into 50s talk. And I just love that. I love the um, that period where Australians, their, their, their accents actually trans, sort of transformed first and foremost with the working class from from um, British to Australian, and I love that. I just love that whole feel, and it's, you know what, the longer you wait to see this movie, or for me, the longer I wait to see it again, the more I want to see it. You've actually made me want to see it now. So I just want to see it, because it was probably seven years ago, so I want to see it now and even enjoy it more, because the further back in history it is, the better it is. I, I talked about the uh, competitiveness of these shearers, but one of the memorable scenes, and it, it is in the trailer, if you want to have a look in the trailer, but it is uh, Jack Thompson and Johnny Hewitt have got out of the shower and they've got towels wrapped around them and they're at the sink washing their um, overalls, you know, which are filthy after a day's shearing. But they're so competitive about everything that they start looking who's washing their clothes harder and faster and <laughs> getting the job done. So it turns into another competition. And, of course, as they're vigorously uh, soaping their overalls and washing them clean, the towels come loose and you just see their ass cheeks wobbling yeah, yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> a, it is a great scene. No, uh, no, I'm glad, I'm glad you, you're with me on that one because it, it definitely is a favourite film of mine. And as I throw to you, I'm happy to say the only reason I didn't have your choice of film at number 16 on my list is because you had it and we didn't want to double up. This is a great film and I'm really looking forward to your review of your number 16. 16 film Fawny, what is it? Well, I think it is the definitive coming-of-age movie. Now, for people that don't know what a coming-of-age movie, it is generally a movie of adolescence, young teens, uh, transition from childhood into adulthood, sort of self-explanatory. Look, um, I'm a bloke, and my coming-of-age movie is with boys in it because there are quite a few coming-of-age girl movies. I think they were more of the time coming out of the United States, 16 Candles, movies like that. But for young boys into men, it was the journey you were taken on with Stand By Me. Now, Stand By Me, the Ben E. King song features prominently. But this is the story of um, young Chris. Oh, no, sorry, not Chris. It's um, Gordy. Now, Gordy takes the form of a young young boy. And he sort of is the narrator, but we see him later in life as Richard, played by Richard Dreyfuss. It's Will, Will Wheaton, the young actor. And isn't that, can, I, can I just chip in? That is a yep. I, I love Will Wheaton's performance as uh, Gordy in yep. this film. And, um, yeah, it's sort of interesting. The other child actors in this sort of, I think, became a lot bigger than he did. But his performance in this is terrific. Um, well, one of them became bigger, and I'm glad he's in the movie, River Phoenix as Chris, because he'll feature in this segment in one of my songs very shortly, but with less um, less sort of a subtlety or less empathy that I'll show for him and his character in this movie. So I apologise to any River Phoenix fans for what's coming up. He plays Chris, probably Gordy's best friend, um, troubled, and you just get a sense that Chris is a great kid, great kid, but it might be a bit hard at home for Chris. Um, 
and that's true. Uh, there's Corey Feldman. He also had his problems off off screen, but he plays young Teddy, and he's um, sort of the less educated of the group, but just a, a decent bloody bloke anyhow. And then Vern is played by, um, I think, I think his name's Terry. Jerry, Jerry O'Connell. Oh, Jerry, sorry, Jerry O'Connell. Um, and then they've got uh, the villain in the police. There's a young Kiefer Sutherland playing Ace, a couple of years older. These kids are all young teens, 13, 14. And Kiefer Sutherland, you see, uh, and this I love about the movie. He's only a couple of years older than him. But that's a that's a, that's a a whole different age group, a world apart. You know, a sixteen year old going on to seventeen, they think themselves men. They've already gone through puberty. They've had their girlfriends. They 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 are they're not there, and it's maybe played out a bit too much in American movies. They're not there to help younger younger brothers and their friends through their coming of age period. They're there to to um, basically to bully them. And that's he plays the classic bully in this, but in the end, four is better than one. It's a journey for something. Well, for them, it's the most serious thing ever. A report of a dead body next to a train line. Uh, a, a vagrant, a homeless man, got hit by a train. But this is leaving the little small town America, you know, and their white picket fences. It was the boys on their own walking. You know, through semi-rural landscape, but it's about their interaction. It's about their discussions. It's the humour. It's the pathos, and it's young boys. And this is really important: young boys learning, and also showing anybody who watched that movie that it's all right for boys to share their emotions with other boys. And that's really important. You know, we talk about depression and reaching out to people, but especially for young boys, young teens, that is very difficult. But if you've got friends the same age that you can trust, and that's really what this movie is about, it's about the trust between four kids and saying things that, you know, they that kids their age feel uncomfortable with saying, but if you've got good friends, you do share your, your deepest secrets with them. And that's it's a beautiful movie like that, especially for boys because we... I don't think men or boys have that many of those movies. And I advise any parents of young boys of that age to watch that movie with them, or at least make sure they see the movie because it might develop them and their emotional IQ quicker than any any talk you could have with the son. Uh, very, very well summed up. I can't really add anything to that. And I, I agree with you to the, to the point where... Uh, in this house uh, when the two boys who lived here were growing up. It was a recurring joke that whenever we talked about our favourite movies, I would start to say something and the two of them would uh, uh, echo simultaneously, stand by me. And, of course, the more you, rec <laughs> the more you recommend something to teenage boys, the less likely they are to yeah, that's watch what, it. That, you know what, Rowan? They have to stumble onto it because if we point them in that direction, it's cheesy and, and all outdated and stupid. Yeah. But but I'll tell you what, at some point in your life, they'll watch it, hopefully, and the penny will drop and they'll go, that's, that's, that's me. I reckon every man who watches that movie sees a part of himself in those four boys at some point in time.
Yeah, I agree. It's also got a great, and uh, it's not a spoiler alert because it's not central to the plot, but uh, the final line of dialogue in this film has always stayed with me, and it's Richard Dreyfus in the present looking back on that story and saying, uh, narrating, uh, saying, I never had any friends later on like the ones I had when I was 12. Jesus, does anyone? Yeah. Um, which sums it up beautifully. Yeah, look, it's a beautiful film, directed by Rob Reiner, of course. Um, I love Rob Reiner's stuff, and and this is – it's a great film. If you haven't seen it, even if you're a girl, um, uh, I'd definitely check this out. It's a great film. All right. And, Rowan. Yes. One of three movies. We've already had The Green Mile in my top 20, written by uh, from a book by Stephen King. I ah, mean, yes. what an enormously talented writer. But don't worry about horror stories. Or, or, or sort of scaries, he has just got a great catalogue of all his writing apparently seemingly is very convertible to movie, which is great. No, true, true. All right, let's move on to our number 16 songs. And uh, well, some quirky selections in these lists, but this one, I reckon most people, certainly most people around our age, I reckon, Finey, would be familiar with this one. wasn't necessarily a huge hit, it did get played a lot, though, and a very, very, very distinctive song. That is because of the uh, the use of uh, some unusual instrumentation. It's got a uh, the start, particularly a real Eastern sound. Think um, you know psychedelic Beatlesy Eastern sort of sound. Um, I've never worked out exactly what the instrumentation is, but it's right through it, and it's perfect for it. It's a big, big sweeping song this and it really com- complemented by one of the great film clips um, of these guys trudging through a snow landscape uh, thinking Iceland. Anyway, if you haven't worked out what I'm talking about, uh, the band is Echo and the Bunnymen from England. The song is The Cutter. An absolutely massive song from 1983. Off one of my favourite albums, Porcupine. This whole album is superb. And um, Echo and the Bunnymen recorded about half a dozen film clips in the same setting for this album. So they're all in a big package on YouTube if you're interested. Check it out. Back of Love was another great track from this album too. But The Cutter, um, it's just so distinctive. The, the I'm not going to try and imitate the start, <laughs> make the noise of that instrument. But as soon as you hear the first few notes, um, if you were familiar with this song, it immediately takes you back to what it was and it, it is it builds up beautifully in the lyrics from Ian McCulloch are quite um what's the word mystical and a bit uh yeah I don't know uh, well I can't think of the right word but they you know they, they allow you to paint the picture of what the song's talking about and it's just a bit yeah big like I said big sweeping sound it finishes off with a great climax um Let's have a listen to a small sample of The Cutter by Echo and the Bunnymen. Well, Rowan, 
payback. Payback was swift and pleasurable because just as you would have had Stand By Me in your movies had I not gazumped you, I definitely, I've always loved the cutter. I mean, Echo and the Bunnymen, I wasn't therefore thereby drawn in to their full catalogue of songs, I've got to say. I mean, I enjoy them because I tried a lot more, but I never got anything as instantly gratifying. And I love I love songs that come at you. And you that opening, we, we, we're not going to hum it or, or la-di-dar it, but people will know it. And it is powerful. It drags you into the song. I think the, the lyrics are almost surreal. Um, we hear about, you know, who's on the, is it seventh floor or second floor? I'm not quite sure which floor they're on. Um, Second, hurdles, I think. Yeah, there's hurdles approaching. There's spare us a cut of what, <laughs> you know, they could be references to many different things. But what this song always has is a, a really melodic pull to it that is unique. And that's great in music because so much music is repetitive. They're, they're a band too, Finey, that I think have uh, held their resonance culturally. And um, you think about, uh, some of their songs that have been used in movies, uh, like Donnie Darko, for example. Um, yeah. I think The Killing Moon is a song, another. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That is right. Yeah. Echo and the Bunnyman song that's yeah. been uh, referenced in popular culture quite a lot over the years. It's a great track. Yeah. It is a great album. And yeah, if you're one of the few people that hasn't heard it, check out that whole album, Porcupine um, by Echo and the Bunnyman. All right, uh, Finey, your number 16 song. Yeah, well, this song, I've almost got to go back to front as to why it's in there. Look, I love Johnny Cash, and I was not going to leave Johnny Cash out of my top 20. So what do I do? I want Johnny Cash in there. Do I pick a song that is absolutely instantly identified, identified with Johnny Cash? So that would be either Walk the Line or Ring of Fire, I think. I'm not going to go for Boy Named Sue, that sort of silly. Um, but those two could have easily got the nod. I could have gone for False and Prison Blues. That's a great song. All three of those songs I love. And sometimes you stumble onto another song, which is really, look, it, it's not the world's greatest song because it's one of those talking story songs that Johnny Cash does so well. It's actually a song by somebody called Red Arnell from 1947. Cash released it in 68 on his Folsom Prison Blues album uh, when he went to Folsom Prison. And he sung it in Folsom Prison. Now, the name of the song is Cocaine Blues. And it is it's actually a rewording of a song called The Little Sadie from that 1940s period. But when rewritten and then sung by the great Johnny Cash in his own particular style, it sort of humorously tells the story in the first person of um, it's a um, rollicking adventure of murder, capture, and in the end, a little warning against the uh, temptation of using cocaine. Too bad, if, too bad if you're one of the murder victims. I don't know if you'd be calling well, it his ro- ro- rollicking. Yeah, well, no, that's, why, that's why there's a, a, a very dark. He, he kills his wife. Yeah, I did. I did um, read the lyrics. <laughs> yeah, and, and he kills his wife, and he says, "Why in the song?" Um, you know. It's along the lines of she told me that she, my wife told me that I was um, 
hers for you know hers forevermore or something like that. And but then I found out that there were three more just like me. Well, so, that's, hang on, that's enough of a build-up. Throw to the song. Yeah. Well, here it is. Here's a part of Cocaine Blues, Johnny Cash and his storytelling best. Got up next morning and I grabbed that gun. Took a shot of cocaine and away I run. Made a good run, but I run too slow. They overtook me down in Juarez, Mexico. Laid in the hot joints, taking the pills. And walked the sheriff from Jericho Hill. He said, Willie Lee, your name is not Jack Brown. You're the dirty hack that shot your woman down. All right, I've got to say, I've got to declare here, never been a fan of country music. Uh, just doesn't interest me. But I do see the love people have for Johnny Cash because you mentioned storytelling. And he does, he does tell a damn good story, doesn't he? Yeah, he tells it, you know what? Sometimes disingenuously, Rowan, because he sort of portrays himself as an ex an ex jailbird. He never was in prison. He, one night for stealing flowers from a graveyard. So he's not quite the bad boy that he always portrays himself as. But he certainly stood up for the small man, for the imprisoned man, for the American Native American, and for African Americans. And for that, he was before his time. Well, I've got to say we've uh, we're up to number sixteen now. So five uh, twenty nine, yeah, five selections we've each had. Your five song choices so far. Um, if that's a sample of the whole twenty, it is going to be the most eclectic mixture of songs in the history of top twenty song lists. I mean, um, but that that sort of is it's true of me. And people listen to a song of mine. Or I played music in the car. I've got a playlist, and they like us song they go oh this is good and I sort of warn them well that's not indicative so you're probably going to hate me in two songs sorry <laughs> yeah. uh, oh well each to their own alright as I said uh, a double whammy of vinyl and video this week that was number 16 so Finey's number 16 favourite movie of all time was Stand By Me mine was Sunday Too Far Away our number 16 song uh, Cocaine Blues by Johnny Cash for Finey. The Cutter by Echo and the Bunnyman for me. Let's go to number hey, 15. Hey, that's, a good, that's a good pairing, Rowan. What? The Cutter and Cocaine, cocaine Blues? Cocaine and the Cutter? Yeah, okay. Um, well, God, this one's going to be interesting as well. Uh, number 15. Let's start with the movie. And my favourite era of um, Hollywood Finey, I've always said this, is that mid-70s period. There was an extraordinary... Uh, selection of political thrillers made by Hollywood in the seventies, and I've always liked those sorts of films and storytelling films more than big effects, you know. And uh, well, gee, well, have a look at it now. You're hard pressed to get a decent story in a film now. But uh, mid seventies, real peak Hollywood for me. And one of my favourite films. Uh, it's not always one of the ones immediately cited, but I, I reckon it's a great story. The acting's terrific. Um, the tension is gripping. Always love this film. It is Three Days of the Condor, made in 1975, directed by Sidney Pollock, uh, starring Robert Redford and Faye Dunaway. Robert Redford plays a CIA, well, not agent. He plays a CIA employee. His job is in a library with a whole lot of other people where he reads everything that comes out, books, journals, etc., looking for hidden code from, you know, KGB types. 
Uh, as you can imagine, it's a job that uh, is a bit like a needle in a haystack stuff. But basically, he's a researcher in a quiet little city office, um, of course, discreetly tucked away, not labelled CIA or anything. Anyway, uh, he works there with his colleagues and uh, one day he goes out to get the lunch for everyone, comes back, and everyone's dead. Everyone has been murdered. Uh, that is a slight spoiler alert, but it happens in the first five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it happens in the first five minutes of the film. So if you're prepared to stick I've got to, I've got to, Roland, I've seen the film and I'm going to back you up because why else is one guy going to get everybody's lunch? You know that's not good for everybody else yeah. in the office. Yeah. Well, he had a lot of lunch. He had a lot <laughs> of lunch he could snack on afterwards. I, don't think, I think he sort of lost his appetite. But it actually... The whole tone of the film is set in that first five minutes because there is something really chilling about the way these people are bumped off. And that, that uh, what transpires is there is a CIA within the CIA and it's all about, um, you know, sort of groups within the CIA fighting their own little political struggle. And uh, sorry, the one actor I didn't mention is who I should have because he, he steals the show. He is so chillingly efficient and professional as a hitman, Max von Sydow, playing the hired hitman, Joubert. Um, and uh, he is absolutely brilliant in this film. But I, I think Robert Redford's brilliant. Faye Dunaway polarises people as the love interest, but I quite like Faye. She's got beautiful eyes. And uh, there's a chemistry between her and Robert Redford. But just a great um, a thriller. It's tense. It's gripping. The plot's really good as Robert Redford gets back, finds his co-workers murdered, has no idea what's happened, desperately tries to find out and avoid being killed himself because he's smart enough to work out pretty quickly that uh, he was supposed to be one of those people bumped off as well. Um, it is a great movie. Always loved it, Finey. Uh, what, what do you think of it? Yeah, look, I, I I really like the movie. I've seen it and more than once. And I now sit back and I don't want to do it again. I don't want to ruin the movie, so I won't go into the exact details, but the movie wraps up with a sort of an overriding message that says that there's a check and balance for all these behaviours in the public in the public space. And that would but, be a spoiler, so don't repeat that, that line. Yeah, I'm saying, but as as we get older, I realise that's not true. I, it's a it's a lovely notion, but it just doesn't it doesn't not ring true in 2021, Rowan. Well, social media has certainly changed the score. Uh, anyway, watch the film and you'll see what we're talking about. But um, it, it's great. It moves quickly. It's fast. It's tense. Uh, terrific film. Sydney Pollock, the director, Three Days of the Condor. All right, Finey, what's your number 15? Well, this, is all, this is difficult. First of all, it is very difficult for me to give any review of this movie, not for the sake of a spoiler alert, just for the sake of... I can't do these scenes justice. And look, Roger Ebert, the famous reviewer, said of this movie, it's a movie called Irreversible. It's from 2002. It's a French movie directed by Caspar Noé. He's never said this. At the time he said he has never said this before. He said this movie is so violent and cruel, most people would consider it 
totally unwatchable. Now, I've seen the movie. I would never see it again. It is so hard to watch. You know, it's not a horror movie. It's not a slasher movie. It's not. A, it's none of that. It's very real. It's called Irreversible because it's played in reverse time. The scenes go in reverse order. So it starts at the end and works its way backwards. Now, in doing so, Rowan, this movie treads through some horrific ground. And what's horrible about it is the people in it are very, very normal. They're younger than us, so early 30s, relationships, um, a baby. Uh, they're just normal people going out on a very normal night, a bit of partying into the Parisian night. And it is a very, very hard movie to watch, but utterly compelling. There is a scene in it when it was shown at the Cannes Film Festival, I believe most people walked out. This scene is infamous or famous, whichever way you want, and it will tap into your very own psyche. Whether you can watch it and how you feel while you're watching it, you will only know as a person and it will speak to you maybe more than anything you've seen on celluloid. That's why I include the movie, but I do not. This is not a recommendation to go out and see Irreversible. It's certainly not a movie you watch with popcorn and Coke. You watch it and you suffer it. You endure it. And at the end, you might know something about yourself you didn't at the beginning. That's all I can say. Well, I've got to say, I watched the uh, trailer for it and was left absolutely none the wiser. I don't know why. Uh, I don't know why they even bother with film trailers. Most of them just yeah, absolutely mystifying. I think, but uh, that without giving too much away, because I, I I'm interested. I I don't know this myself. Can you give us some indication about that scene you're talking about? No, no, I won't. Okay. No. All right. Well, if you're brave, uh, there you go. Irreversible French film uh, director, Fanny. You got that information Gas- for us? Gaspar Noé. Okay. Um, Starring well, people that I that we are not maybe maybe foreign um, film aficionados and French film buffs will know them, but I didn't list them because they're not names known to us as as um, English speaking moviegoers. All right, let's move on to our number 15 favourite song. And uh, this one's a bit different for me. Well, the cutter, no, the cutter wasn't that different. It's basically still a rock song. But this is, this isn't my usual cup of tea, but uh, I like to wheel this one out and say it's an example of I, I do have a wider variety of musical tastes and people give me credit for. There's a bit of a story about this film, Finey. You'll like this. I went to the 1979 grand final with my then brother-in-law. I was 14. Uh, We had seats in the top deck of the Ponsford stand, which uh, coincidentally happened to be the perfect vantage point for the controversial Wayne Harms uh, knock of the ball from the boundary line for the winning goal. And uh, I've always maintained the ball was still in play. Anyway, it was an eventful day because as we were walking around the uh, Brunton Avenue side to get to our entrance, um, the pre-game entertainment was already happening. And one of the parachutists missed the MCG and flew over our heads and crashed into the Jolomont rail yard uh, rail lines. Uh, right in front of us and um, right in front of me. And um, <laughs> it was it was pretty spectacular. Look, uh, it's not 
a tragedy. Fortunately, he survived. He was injured. Um, but we saw the whole thing. It was incredible, really. Anyway, uh, got to our seats, saw a pretty amazing, famous grand final. And then we went straight from there, picked up my sister back at their place in Richmond, and we drove up to uh, a friend's little country cottage in Blackwood, and um, so we, you know, sitting in the middle of the MCG with a hundred thousand people, and like three quarters of an hour later, we're in the middle of nowhere. It was a really surreal. But on the way, we uh, the guy driving the car turned the radio on, and this song came on, and it was I don't know. It just it you know sometimes you hear a song and it has an immediate impact on you, and I just found this song really haunting. It's very keyboard focused. Um, as soon as I say the name, you'll that'll make sense. But it's a sim- very simple keyboard synthesizer line, futuristic sound, certainly for 1979. And I loved it then, and I still love this now. And it's such a simple song. There's no great hook or riff or chorus as such. I'm talking about Gary Newman uh, and Tubeway Army was the band that played with him. And the song is his first hit single, Our Friends Electric. I just love this song. I still love it. It's There's something about the sound of those keyboards. And it's funny because keyboards during the 80s went through a real mushy sort of tinny sounding phase and I just hated the sound of them. But th- these ones, these earlier sort of versions of keyboards, maybe Kraftwerk's a bit the same, Emerson, Lake and Palmer or whatever, I find that it's a richer, deeper sound and it just it has more impact and more atmosphere or whatever. And there you go. I actually quite, I really quite like a lot of Gary Newman's stuff, particularly um, the first couple of albums. He did Replicas and The Pleasure Principle, I think, were his first two albums. Still play them quite a lot. Um our friends electric, and uh, if you don't, if that's not ringing a bell, uh, just type it into Spotify or YouTube. And uh, again, one of those songs, the very first few notes, you go, Ah, oh, yeah, that. Uh, again, most people our vintage have heard it. Let's hear 30 seconds or so of Our Friends Electric by Gary Newman and Tubai Army. that song because I'd forgotten that song. It's got a really minimalist charm to it, actually. It has. And if you put together his two big hits, you get a question that is answered in the affirmative in 2021 in a very big way. What? Our friends electric know their cars? No, our cars electric. And yes, they are. And and they're going to be more of them, I think. No, I I know there are. Uh, Cars, cars, of course, a massive follow-up to our friends electric. I went and saw him in concert at the Palais in 1980, it was one of the first concerts I went to and I loved it. Um, yep. So keyboards, like I say, don't let me ramble about this, but keyboards I came to associate with pretty tinny, poppy sounding stuff that 
I've lost its resonance after about five minutes, but it depends sort of how they sound. I reckon they can really complement rock music and there's something really brooding and dark about a lot of Gary Newman stuff, which I love. Anyway, uh, to each their own again. But uh, Finey, that is a fair bit different from your choice of number 15. And as you uh, hinted before, a fairly macabre sort of link between your number 16 movie and your number 15 song. Please explain. Well, it's Old Man River, but, of course, it's um, prefixed by You'll Never Be An, in inverted commas, and it's a song by Tism. This is Serious Mum. It was released in 1995. Basically, You'll Never Be An Old Man River because it was penned after he died in front of a nightclub in where was it in LA or uh, was it the Viper Room? Yeah, yeah, yes, I think so. Now, there's a few things about this. First of all, I'm sort of a bit of a pity it comes straight after Cocaine Blues because, in a sense, both of these have a touch of the novelty songs about them, and you know they're not quite the three or Ahab the Arab, but there is a big tongue-in-cheek element to this song. This song to me is the whole package of absolute pleasure of watching the film clip. This is the best live film clip you could ever see. Oh, that Tism knew knew the value of performing their guts out on stage because their music was sometimes it was actually quite good, but it was more perform. It was part performance art, novelty. So the film clip to this is at the Fitzroy Town Hall. And they give it everything. They're in their normal garish outfits with crazy hair, crazy suits. Uh, there is a link to the first song because before the film clip starts, two of the members, I think Ron Hitler Barassi and Humphrey B. Flaubert, are uh, giving a very stern warning to children. Now, just a warning. It's very important. Don't use drugs. Do not do drugs. And they look down the camera and then they, they turn to each other. I thought that went pretty well. And then they roll up a note and snort something off the table. Now, interestingly, none of the members of that band had anything to do with drugs in real life. They were all sort of scholastic people and ended up teachers and professors and that was their lot in life. But this song is pretty basic. It's got a pogo beat to it, you know, na 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 you know, and the lyrics are uh, sung or spoken staccato style, some great lyrics, you know. It starts off by talking about River Phoenix dying in front of this club and the last pairing in that first verse is, you know, he's there in his death throes. I said, I'd have one of those. Let's have a listen to it. You'll pick up the music, but I really... It's very rewarding to watch the film clip, very rewarding when you put the two together. Have a listen to Tism with You'll Never Be In, Old man River Phoenix. I'm on the drug, I'm on the drug, I'm on the drug, the kill River Phoenix, I'm on the drug, I'm on the drug, I'm on the drug, the kill River Phoenix. All 
I don't want to be the killjoy here. I, I like my share of novelty stuff. I think Tism, very, very clever band, and, and the lyrics, obviously clever. Bon Scott gets a, a reference in there, doesn't he? I, I drank the slab that killed Bon Scott, was it? I, the, I killed the slab that Bon Scott drank. Yeah, that's it. Um, but I'm, I've got to admit, when, when I heard this initially, I, I didn't like it. It made me a bit angry because I really liked River Phoenix. I thought he, <laughs> I thought he was... I thought he you was know a, what? What? That's it. That's Tism. Bad luck, mate. <laughs> it's well, funny. I thought he was. I thought he was a great actor, and I thought he was a decent human being. And it was a bit of a tragedy, really. So, yeah, I, I didn't take that well necessarily. Yeah. But um, but you know what they're saying, Rowan? Not not about River Phoenix. There's no comment on him. But the drugs that killed him must have been pretty good. You know, they're pretty strong drugs. Yeah. So, so they're saying I'll have a crack at that. You know, you know um, the they also the- wanted to eat the sandwich that. Mama Cass choked on. Correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a long time <laughs> ago, Fanny. It's nearly 30 years ago now. Time goes yeah, yeah. quick. But uh, look, there's two highlights in this song and the film clip for me that I want people, I'd like people to keep an eye or ear out for. They are so Australian that I reckon they've written a line and don't realise how funny it is that they've written it. They just think it's a normal thing to say. Um. So they're talking about that the, they need more, more sort of uh, celebrity passings to um, satiate their appetite for, um, you know, for this new buzz that they're after. Death. <laughs> Correct. And they use the term, um, odds on, it'll be Shane Warne. Uh but they use the term odds on as though everybody knows what odds on means. It's a very particular racing term and it's for a favourite that is shorter than even money. And it's funny that they just use it without any reference. The other thing in the film clip, Rowan, very quickly, the crowd goes berserk and at one point you see a guy crowd surfing and get, and get tossed upside down into the crowd. But true to form, this man who's probably hit the ground with his head his leg is now pogoing in the air as his arms were previously. It's very funny. Uh, also very prescient in, uh, I think, forecasting the demise of Michael Jackson as well. Oh, sorry. Yeah, odds on it'll be Michael Jackson, not Shane Warren. That's right. Odds on it'll be Michael Jackson. Correct. Exactly right, Rowan. I was going to say same thing, but uh, it's really Michael Jackson, Shane Warner, far from the same thing. Um, all right. <laughs> there you go. Two very contrasting number 15 songs. This segment uh, is certainly taking us on a uh, roller coaster of musical and uh, cinematic styles. Uh, all right. Long segment this week, vinyl video, but good fun. Uh, one segment left today, and it is nostalgia time, but back on the footy. <laughs> Footy flashbacks. All right, let's get into a bit of footy nostalgia now. Uh, Hawthorne fans, seems a like longer ago now, but uh, the fantastic days of the three-peat 2013 to 2015, the Hawks reigned supreme three years premiers in succession. I'll tell you what, though, they always, in each case, though, had a uh, bit of a nervous moment in the week before. In fact, quite incredible. Hawthorne played in four preliminary finals in a row 
in which the margin was less than a goal. They lost the first one in 2011 to Collingwood, uh, won the second one against Adelaide, won the next one against Geelong, and also, well, spoiler alert, won this one, uh, 2014, against Port Adelaide. And having just, I won't say got out of jail, because that uh, implies they didn't deserve to win, but having just survived a scare in each case, went on and won the premiership the following week. So this is the 2014 preliminary final. Port Adelaide um, in the second year under Ken Hinckley, really making some big strides, finalists, got to the second week of the finals the year before. And uh, 2014, looking pretty good. Almost, almost made it to the big dance. But, uh, well, as has proved a problem six or seven years on, still unable to take that final step. But, gee, they gave this a crack and uh, didn't look like it was going to be the case. In fact, 19 minutes into the final quarter, of this game. Hawthorne had this game totally in hand, leading by 28 points. I don't know if they took their foot off the uh, off the gas or Port just gave it one last surge, but Angus Monfries chipped in with a goal. Chad Wingard kicked a goal. Jared Pollock kicked a goal. Uh, got the difference down to uh, a couple of kicks. And, uh, well, Let's set it up for a grandstand finished. Here is the last uh, around three minutes of the 2014 preliminary final, Hawthorne and Port Adelaide. Langford's had a big second half. He's done a great job on Travis Boak and winning a lot of the footy himself. Bruce from the intersection of the 50 in the boundary. Gunston Mark play on goal. 28-point Hawthorne lead. Biggest margin of the game. Boak lets it rip high footy. Here's Wingard. He's marked. Non-preferred side, though. Looks like it's going the left foot banana. Huge kick. Goes the left banana and he goals. Wingard has gold. They're back within 16. Long handball. Schultz was a big kick. He's a thumping kick. He squirts that inside and his mark has been paid to Pollock. Pollock from 55 metres. It's right there. It's there. I think it's a goal. I think it's a goal. I think it's a goal. Yes or no. Let us touch them. Just like a check. It's a goal, I reckon. Porter back. Four minutes to go. They're back within 10 points. Port got the numbers. Boat court. Wingard, 70 out, gets it in. Oh, boy, oh, yes. this is marked. Oh, no, Richo. Hawthorne have stopped. Port are back within four points. They're back within one straight kick. Oh, John Longmire, 10 minutes ago, thought he was playing Hawthorne. White, this will be a chance to score. Moore is marked to hit the front. It's a left to right. It's very, very tight. Right, can Hawthorne hold it now? Burgoyne pumps it long and wide. Mark Ebert, he doesn't waste any time. Brilliant smother Hodge. Oh, look at Jonas go in. What a smother from Luke Hodge. It'll be a big kick. Here comes Monfries. Monfries and Lake. Lake and Monfries. 25 seconds to go. Five seconds, right. two seconds. Gonna, oh, I thought he was going to play hard in the ball. Hawthorne have made the grand final. Hawthorne have won. 
his dream. Buddy versus Hawthorne, the two best sides make it. How far did you say Hawthorne were ahead, Robert? They were 28 points up at the 19-minute mark of the last quarter. Now, now, I've got to admit, I did not realise that they were that far up. Mm. That's a staggering. That's staggering, isn't it? Especially considering when you consider um, uh, sort of their their finals, not reputation, but their their, their finals record. Hawthorne. Um, that's a great. That's a great finish by Port, isn't it? Well, the thing uh, you got to remember after the two preliminary finals too that uh, Sydney finished on top of the ladder, absolutely destroyed North Melbourne by 71 points in their preliminary final. Hawthorne, already uh, underdog, just scraped over the line against Port. Now, this is part of the reason Sydney went into that grand final, red-hot favourites against the Hawks. Yes. Well, we know what happened there. Hawthorne came out and smashed the Swans by 63 points. So, they certainly... Do you think Port would have beaten them? uh, Beaten Sydney? Yep. Uh, No. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think Hawthorne were the the one team that uh, might have had Sydney covered. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, the Swans would have beaten Port in a grand final. But uh, Hawthorne, certainly once they got the scare behind them, able to go on with it and convert uh, three narrow preliminary final wins into three... um, uh, I won't say all comfortable. The 301 wasn't, but three... Very, very good grand final wins. Um, all right, Fanny, what's your flashback this week? Let's go back to 2017, Rowan, and let's go back to a game at the MCG between Richmond and Fremantle. Now, Richmond had a great start to the season, but for many football fans, I wonder what I was thinking at the time. I'm pretty sure I was amongst that number who, after a couple of close close misses for the Tigers started to cast our sort of Schadenfreude eye over their fortunes. And this game, now I'm just checking the crowd at this game. This game might not have got the biggest billing ever because when Fremantle comes to town, they tend to not draw a huge crowd. Is that fair to say? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So this game only had 31,000 fans at it. But it was a very important game of football at the time, seemingly confirming some people's opinions about these two teams. There's a spoiler alert here. It's a great last minute and a half, almost. And I remember after the game, people were doing analysis of, you can't do that in that number of seconds. Why didn't this team do that? All they had to do was this. Easy in hindsight. For those who don't remember it or may not have been you know, watching football at that time, we take you to the MCG round eight, 2017, Tigers against Fremantle and a grandstand finish with a hero's effort on the siren. 30 and counting. Running down the clock. Got to stay wide. Got to stay boundary. Now they're going to run in the oh, Richmond's. It's against Crozier. Martin, 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 And Martin's got on centre wing. Over it goes to Caddy. Twisting and turning. Needs something inside. He just jams it on the boot. Hurley has to go. Ball spills. Walters gets it down. Handball comes out. Blakely. Great pressure. Last ball of the dice for the Tigers. Gotcha about to send them forward. 
Real his job now. One minute left. Heads wide. This is the mark. He's got it out of the boundary line. It's a juggle. No mark for him. Was he held there? Was he held? It's a juggled mark. Second grade was over the line. First. Well, there was a little arm grab in the middle of the marking contest. That could have been pain. That was a free. 53 seconds. Sandlin's down. Neil Johnson caught, dispossessed. Pierce, Bachelor, Martin, still fighting. Butler, hard break through. When dominating clearances, Richmond. And the Tigers got two spares back, so Fremantle got a two-man advantage. It just takes one clear kick, though. Just one exit. From the flick down, Caddy nearly had it. Hill nearly had it. Oh, yeah. Weller gave it up. Lambert kick, smothered. Ricochets, Fife, caught, flicked it up. Sutcliffe nearly. Stolen back. Kick a goal. Ellis, Ellis. Absolutely mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. They're in front from Ellis's boot with 21 seconds left. Here we go. Last roll of the dice. Sandilands tries to get it out. Here they go. Lucky now. Set half forward, needs a mark, and he's got it. Oh, yeah. He's going to kick after the siren. What drama at the MCG? Oh, how big a kick is this for the former skipper? David Mundy, the siren's gone. He needs to kick a goal. <laughs> That's sick of the guts feeling at the moment. They haven't scored a goal since the 19 and a half minute mark of the third term. It does not matter. After a of bone-crushing football. It comes down to one kick. David Mundy, the 259-game veteran of the Dockers, the former captain, comes in. The kick is on its way. Uh, He's yeah. kicked the goal and Fremantle win it after the siren. What a game of football at the MCG. David Mundy, stand up. You're a star. Incredible. I remember watching this uh, live on, on uh, TV, sitting here in my office on the Saturday afternoon and like everyone else, thinking uh, Brandon Ellis puts the Tigers up. 21 seconds left on the clock. How do you win a game in 21 seconds? Well, that happens when you let Lockie Neal come streaming out of the, the centre square with that last clearance. And uh, then it was uh, Dylan Grimes who stumbled um, uh, behind David Mundy and allowed Mundy to mark. And then, of course, the ice cool finish. And uh, three games in a row, that was the second of three games in a row the Tigers lost by under a kick. They lost to Bulldogs by five points a week before, lost this one by two points, had the GWS game seemingly won, and then literally with seconds left on the clock, Jeremy Cameron um, put the Giants up three games in a row, lost by under a kick. And I think everyone thought, oh, here we go. They're going to somehow blow this again. Well, we all know what happened after that. In fact, they lost just three more times in the final, what is it, 8, 13, 16 games left, including the final series and an absolutely dominant final series, beating Geelong by 51 points, GWS by 36 points, and Adelaide on grand final day by 48 points to win their first flag for 37 years. So uh, pretty much the last reversal the Tigers would have on their way to, well, not just one flag, three flags over the next four seasons. Incredible era, perhaps kick-started by the bitter disappointment of this game. And not the only time 
Um, in fact, I meant to look that up fine. I'm pretty sure it's not the only time Fremantle uh, beat Richmond on the siren. Um, do you remember when else they did that? I'm just trying to remember it off the top of my head and it's not. There was a game, Richmond Freo, but I, I think Richmond won after the siren. Was it that little Ben Hollands kicked a goal? Oh, gee, that is a long time ago. No, look, there's a few close Not Ben Holland. Here. Remember there was that guy, Ben uh, Holland? Little yeah. guy, yeah, small, far smaller in stature. Anyway, uh, great uh, ice-cold finish by David Mundy to win the Dockers a rare uh, game at the MCG. All right. And Rowan, they righted the ship two weeks later, only just against Essendon. They were, it was a really close game, sort of. A couple of points either way for the first three quarters. Now, had they lost that game, had your Bombers won that, they would have plummeted down to, because it was a compact ladder, they would have been about 11th or 12th and Essendon would have jumped up into about 5th or 6th. So, uh, now, you know, fine margins to get that season kick-started. I wonder what would have happened. You're sliding doors, I reckon, that Essendon game. Sliding doors is a good uh, topic for a a movie and um, an AFL website segment that has absolutely no relation at all to sliding doors. <laughs> well, that's the sliding door. <laughs> um, yeah. What if you did a yeah, segment? Correct. What if you did a segment for a website that had some bearing on what it was called? Uh, all, right, all right. Big shout out to Damien Barrett too. Um, all right. That's it for this week. Thanks for your company. Uh, draft wrapped up uh, an extra big vinyl video segment, some footy flashbacks. Uh, we will be back next week. Before we come back, though, Finey, where should everyone go for the best hamburger in town? 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. It's a burger, top to bottom, like everybody remembers a burger should be. Not just the buns, not just the meat, the vegetables and the cheese and whatever you have in it. The whole bite takes you to an era, to a time when uh, I know, you know, you, we are nostalgic of things. Or even it takes you back to mum and dad stopping the car after the on the way home from the beach and getting a great burger and a milkshake. If you want that reminiscence, today you go to one forty four Bridport Street, Albert Park, Andrews Hamburgers. Well, you could do sliding doors with Andrews Hamburgers too, and instead of going back, you could go forward. And uh, go in and order a hamburger, and all you'd be able to get is one of those pissy little slider things when you wanted a big burger. How's that? That was, I worked pretty hard to get that connection, and I think I got there in the end. All right, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we'll catch you next week.